Robin Trish McGregor welcome you to a place where all kinds of phenomena flourish. Voices whisper ancient secrets, signs and symbols are abundant. UFOs, ETs, ghosts, and even the dead move about freely. Here we meet authors, researchers, and investigators of the mysterious, the strange, and of the inexplicable anomalies that surround us. Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the mystical underground. Welcome to the mystical underground. I'm Trish McGregor. Rob McGregor. And we're taking you on another journey into the realms that lie beyond the frontier of mainstream science, into the paranormal and unknown phenomena. This week, we're presenting the second part of our interview with Bruce Gernon. In the first segment, which was episode five, we talked about his mysterious flight to the heart of the Bermuda Triangle and his apparent leap through time and space. But in this episode, we explore Bruce Gernon's intriguing experiences with UFOs. We focus on one particular incident that occurred one month after his flight through the Bermuda Triangle phenomenon. That awesome experience has been included in dozens of documentaries on the Bermuda Triangle, but very little has been said about the UFO experience that uh, we're going to explore. My theory is that the startling incident was closely related to the earlier flight in that the unidentified craft that nearly knocks his plane from the sky, then instantly vanished, was offering him a message, telling him in a very visual manner that he had encountered a portal between dimensions on his initial flight, a portal used by crafts arriving arriving and departing. So that's my theory. So let's move right into it. So there's a lot of different theories about what the Bermuda Triangle is about, and one of them is that it's like an interdimensional portal or like a mini black hole that pops up and disappears. So there's no there's no season of the Bermuda Triangle. Like <laughs> it's always with, there. <laughs> between uh, June and uh, November or something like that. It, uh, it can happen at any particular time. And, you know, there's there's planes and their ships go through there every day that don't have any problems. But then sometimes something happens like this. And um, so one of the theories is that this uh, there is this interdimensional portal that appears. And it's possible that uh, crafts from another dimension are moving through here. And that uh, could be what you encountered maybe that lenticular cloud, which is kind of shaped like a UFO, is hiding one uh, a craft that had just come through there. I mean, it's a it's a wild theory, but it's a, you know it's a possibility, especially when uh, you think about what happened one month later. Can you talk about that, Bruce? Uh, you went back out there one month later at night. Uh, yeah, I was just going on a pleasure cruise with a girlfriend. Uh nine o'clock at night because the weather was was perfect uh, clear um and uh, so uh we flew uh, over at miami beach and uh I, for some reason i went to the altitude of uh, ten thousand feet that was the same altitude that when i went through the tunnel and uh 
And so then when we got over to Miami Beach, we started heading offshore. And uh, when we got a few miles offshore, we saw this strange light kind of bobbing up and down, making an odd movement. So it kind of reminds me of Christopher Columbus with how he tried to explain to that light. Uh, right, was, yeah. Mm -hmm. the fr Columbus, the first uh, person who uh, recorded something related to the Bermuda Triangle. Right. Uh, light bobbing uh, in the on the horizon and also his uh, compasses were spinning. Yeah, yeah, that was it. So we watched this for uh, maybe half a minute, and, and then all of a sudden it shoots straight or straight direct on a collision course right for us. It, and, and it's at 10,000 feet, and we're at 10,000 feet, and it comes right in front of us. So th this would be like an encounter, close encounter of the first kind, right? Uh, yeah. It came... I'm not sure how close. I mean, maybe uh, within a uh, hundred feet or something. It seemed like it's too close for comfort. <laughs> Almost the whole windshield in front of us, and and that's when I made the turn as sharp as I could possibly make it to the left. Now, did that. it look did it look like a light or did it look uh, like a craft that was metallic or what could you it, see? Yeah, it, it looked and. Kind of felt like I thought it was definitely metallic, and uh, it was a classic saucer shape, and mm. it had a like a, a dome on the top of it, though. Mm -hmm. But there, I didn't see any portholes or anything like that. And apparently, it, it made uh, this how they can make an incredible turn, ninety degree turn, with with no radius to it. Which would be impossible for any kind of craft that we know of that could make yeah. such a turn. Well, obviously it wasn't a craft that we know of. It was a UFO. <laughs> right in front of me, it, uh, it did that. It executed that turn, and, and it sped off so fast I never saw it again. Yeah. Hmm. Well, going straight up, you know. They can go in any direction. Right, yeah. Well, Bruce, when, <clears throat> when we... When... What am I trying to say? I'm trying to talk about Joe Monigle, what he picked up in the remote viewing for you of your flight. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, one of the things that we followed up on was uh, we contacted Joe McMoneagle, who is uh, uh, remote viewer number 001 with the Stargate program uh, involved with the U.S. Army and the CIA. And this was after that program, that secret program had ended and it had become public. And he was uh, still involved in doing remote viewing, but on a private basis. And we asked uh, uh, Joe if he would do something for us. And we didn't tell him because that he doesn't want to know what it is you're going to uh what is yeah, I mean the way Joe for. works you put the target in a sealed envelope sealed envelope so we put in Bruce's flight uh, on whatever date it was uh, December yeah uh, December of or Jan or no it's January <clears throat> of 1971 I think uh, and so then we sealed the envelope and we just put random numbers on the outside and that's what he used uh, as a remote viewer, just focusing on those numbers. 
And he, he never opened the envelope. Never opened the envelope and just described this uh, experience that uh, Bruce had. Uh, he described it in a kind of an odd way, but then he he drew some. Uh, he drew a craft, right, Bruce? Yeah, he, he's a definitely amazing person. I, I first <laughs> thought, it's so unbelievable. I, I thought maybe he was like a fake or something because it's impossible that he can do this mentally, but he can. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the, you guys spent the night with me down the Keys. Uh, mm -hmm. Right. Joe. And yeah. uh, I thought maybe he'd be kind of a weird guy, but he's perfectly normal. Yeah, he is. I mean, it's incredible what he can do. But then he did one thing. That kind of shook me up a little bit. He, he comes up to me, and I, and I could tell he was a little bit excited. And, uh, he says, you remember that uh, drawing I gave you of the flying saucer? I said, yeah. He says, it didn't have those fins on the back that I drew, did it? And wow. I, I said to him, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. It didn't have any fins. And then I could see he was all upset. <laughs> <laughs> So here's the amazing thing. I mean, the, some people like him apparently have the capability of, of, of physically doing mental maneuvers even. Because uh, he, he gave me all the documents and the drawings and all that. And it was about a, a year later I was reviewing my notes and documents, you know, for the book Rob and I were working on. And, uh, and so I come across the, the sketch that he gave me. And I look at it and said, "What? The fins were missing. It was wow. It looked identical to the one that I saw with no fins." I, I think, have a I, I have a copy of it too, and it, there are no fins in that. Uh, oh. So wait, originally did he draw it with fins? Yeah, yeah, he did. And the fins just disappeared. That's <laughs> the really weird thing. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> God! I came over my house to, to erase them. <laughs> He yeah, broke into your house and uh, found you. Erased him. <laughs> Erased him. Yeah, mentally, That's strange. Me mentally, maybe. <laughs> yeah, somehow that yeah. is really strange. I think yeah. I didn't know this. I know I'm positive it, it happened. You know, it's like another thing that, that Joe does. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, and another uh, thing that <laughs> w we gave uh, Joe's several targets, and another one we gave was. Uh, uh, the target was Autech, which is the oh, yeah. uh, the secret Navy base that's on Andros Island. And it's uh, Autech. Uh, Don't even try and come up with that. We always screw up on what it means. <laughs> Atlantic Undersea Testing and Evaluation. Okay. Underwater. Uh, it's a Navy base now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, it's, an, it's a Navy it's base. It's known right. as the Underwater Area 50. Yeah. It's, you know, uh, legendary. Uh, Underwater Area 51, because there's been a lot of UFOs and USOs, the uh, underwater crafts uh, that have been uh, seen in that area, and so it's it has that uh, that history uh, to it, and it's also where Bruce took off from. Uh, oddly enough, uh, kind of a synchronicity and co uh, coincidence there, and uh, when when he went into this. Uh, had this experience. But so we asked Joe, uh, we put uh, Autech in the uh, envelope, that's all it was, sealed it, put another random number on, and he, <laughs> it's amazing, 
he described this base. He described the buildings on it and uh, the the location, the water. It, it was amazing. You know, he gave several different locations and the percentage of where it would be. And the one in the Bahamas was, I think, the highest uh, rating, like it was 75 or 80 percent that it was in the Bahamas. And uh, it, so it, it's surprising uh, what he was able surprising. to. Shocking. Yeah, <laughs> that he was able to just basically describe this base and what they what they do there. Uh, he, but he didn't talk about UFOs, though. But, uh, you know, he didn't need to. <laughs> but he, he talked about some strange uh mechanical um, machine there though and it, and it was top secret and uh, yeah right. where he said oh he couldn't comment anymore on it because it was yeah yeah he got to a point where he wouldn't uh, talk anymore about it because it, it uh, moved into uh, a secret area and we thought we uh, spent some time out there ourselves uh, we flew out there once for UFO hunters Bruce and I and Trish and Lynn uh, and uh, while we were out there, we met a couple people who were former employees of Vatek, uh, civilian employees who had experiences that they uh, they had encountered with uh, UFOs and USOs, and they were there also for the uh, the show UFO Hunters, and so they had some uh, unusual experiences that they they told us about. I, I just lost my train of thought of what, <laughs> why I was going to say that, but. <laughs> The whole thing with, with well, the whole thing with Andros is nobody wants, even though it's the biggest employer on the island, nobody will talk about it, because yeah. I we, we went out to dinner. I talked to the servers. Oh, hey, tell me yeah. about Autech. Okay, now I remember what I was uh, getting to. One of those guys, ex uh, uh, employees uh, at Autech, said there was there was one building on the base that was highly secret that you had to be have very high, the top highest clearance to go into that building. And he says it was kind of dome shaped. And uh, he said there was something going on in there that was, uh, that he was very curious about. And he was a guy who, uh, his job was to retrieve torpedoes. Uh, they, they shot, they tested torpedoes as one of the things they did out there. And he would go and collect the spent torpedoes. And one time he was out there, and uh, coming up, he was standing on the rack at the back of the boat to pick up a torpedo that, that they're coming up on. He leaned over to pick it up, and he looks down, and he sees this craft right underneath him. He didn't know what it was. He, he says it was uh, too uh, too large to, to be like a submarine, uh, and it, it was just rising up right underneath them, and then it... It paused and then sank right back down. Uh, as, it was like the uh, whatever it was became aware of the coming up underneath the boat and just sank down out of sight. And he thought he figured that this was some kind of secret craft that had, no one knew about at the time. And uh, actually, the way he described it is that it was coming up vertically and uh, <clears throat> rather than coming up sideways, which would make sense to cut through the water easily. Or, easier and and then it just sank back down but then you know as years went by 
you know, there was no no revelations about any such uh, craft. And that's when he uh, started he hearing about other people who are having these experiences related to UFOs and USOs, and he realized that he had seen one. That's why all this stuff is on Andros. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really, really uh, mysterious island. Yeah. Sure, even the history has a lot of mystery. And yeah. remember, Bruce, how on the way back on that flight, well, Rob and I were sitting in the back, and I remember looking at your navigational. You, you had, I mean, you could see all of the islands of the Bahamas, and everything suddenly disappeared. And I said, Rob, <laughs> something's <laughs> just happened. And you didn't say anything about it. Fortunately, you, you knew how to fly visually in this area. So, But you didn't say anything about it until we got back to Wellington. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to... Uh... Shake you up and scare you. I know. And I remember what you said, though, is that as soon as you got over land, it came back on. And you you had it checked out, and there was nothing wrong with it, right? All right. Yeah, yeah. That's only happened that one time. Uh, uh, I, I put over a 1,000 hours flying that plane. Nothing like that ever happened before. Right? Yeah. The whole uh, moving map, uh, it's called the G-1000 Garmin. Yeah, and one of those uh, ex autec employees, when he heard that story, says, oh, you you were hit by an E-bomb. You got zapped. <laughs> you got yeah. zapped. <laughs> yeah. because, we, because we flew right over the base, which is, I guess, off limits. So which probably wasn't we smart. Were, we weren't supposed <laughs> to do that. You can't. It, that's un, I still understand why they don't make that off limits for airplanes. You, you're allowed to fly low right over that base. Oh, you are? It's not yeah. restricted? But there's no way you could walk on it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, uh, I, I've come to a conclusion recently uh, that has to do with Andros uh, and that lenticular cloud. I mean, it, it's actually an old theory, uh, but you think they generated it? Well, no. Okay. Yeah, that's part of the theory. I heard that a long time ago, but. Uh, it's definitely not the normal meteorological event. Yes, we've yeah. studied the radars for almost 50 years and uh, still have never seen anything comparable to this. Hmm. It is natural. There's a natural part of it because I've got like photos of uh, storms that have the tunnels forming in between and nobody's ever flown through those tunnels and so that lenticular cloud uh, I believe uh, it was a, a mothership it, it was just inside it because people have reported seeing these cloaked in the cloud so you really can't mm -hmm. yeah. and, and the mothership this particular one is Big, you know, it's maybe almost a mile long, uh, quarter mile wide. It's a huge thing, and uh, it's another thing that Joe McMonagle has come up. With. I believe you're the one that told me. This this ship is is living organism. Right. That, yeah, Joe said that. That uh, that's he's been uh, doing investigating remote viewing with. Uh, UFOs at UFOs, and uh, that—that's one of the things he came up with. That it's uh, semi-biological. 
Right. The aliens have somehow uh, learned to work with it and be a right. part of it. it. It reminds me of how uh, mankind uh, adopted horses and how that <laughs> it has to do with time. You know, it increased mm -hmm. time travel for them. A big mm -hmm. deal. And so, so I wonder what they were going to do with you, Bruce. <laughs> you no, and your pastors. Right over them when they were doing the countdown to shoot off to another star. Hmm. Maybe so. Right? Yeah, that could yeah. be. And you just kind of got trapped in the, <laughs> in, in, the accident. In the system. So it, it, it puts out some sort of an exhaust when it does that. And this is a natural phenomenon. Yeah, right. And so uh, that's why it affects time. They, uh, they're like a, like an electric eel. How do they generate electricity, you know? And they're a living organism. Yeah. This, this creature generates this. Uh, type of power that they can use to travel through time and, and, and travel throughout the galaxy. Hmm. It's interesting now that in the last couple of years that the U.S. Navy has you know, released these documents of their own pilots that yeah. have uh, uh, filmed uh, crafts and uh, then you know there were the skeptics said, well, this was probably just uh, some something that can be explainable that they they can uh, you know write it off as being uh, a natural object. And the Navy came back and said, no, we do not know what that was, and that yeah. object was actually on there. It wasn't uh, some uh, error, uh, digital error, or anything. That was an object that was moving at incredible speed. And uh, as this uh, <coughs> aircraft carrier moved across the Atlantic, the, these things kept coming uh, over and over them day after day as if they were following them. Yeah, they are pretty incredible. The photos are making a lot of public attention. Uh, right. yeah. Yeah. About I just saw on a TV documentary uh, in Peru, they captured the uh, uh, one of those, and, and, and this one, I believe, was not man-made. The ones that you're talking about, I, they're probably man-made, but the, I think this is another one of these natural things because it, it, it emitted some type of uh, fumes from it. Hmm. Uh, but it was like a, like it was belching, you know? <laughs> like, hmm. Where in Peru was this? It was in the sky. It was offshore. Uh -huh. I think a helicopter caught it. Hmm. I, I may have been on that show, but uh, and tonight there's going to be two shows. Uh, um, uh, that you're in? Uh, yeah, I'll be. I was in one on uh, last week, and uh, that's what, on what show is this? Travel Channel starts at nine o'clock, and they they said I was going to be in the one tonight too. They're, they're like two hours long. And what's it called? That's the that's Alaska the Triangle. Oh, the Alaska Triangle. Yeah. Okay. Why is there? Are there Similar things going on in Alaska? Oh, yeah. There, there's 10 times more planes disappearing. There. Huh. That's interesting. And then on the, at the same time, on the Science Channel, uh, they have uh, the one that you sent me. You text me. Uh, the oh, right. The, the Curse of the Bermuda Triangle. That's a new one that just started. Yeah. So hmm. I'm yeah, on that, too. But... Uh, I don't think I'll be on the one tonight. They're supposed to get back with me and let me know, but mm -hmm. we filmed that at the Naval Museum in uh, Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. yeah. Three guys. It's, it should be pretty good. Then. 
Yeah, uh, they had an article just recently in the Miami Herald uh, about the show. Yeah, I guess the guys are uh, from that area. Yeah, they're, they're from they're guys. from the Upper Keys. Oh yeah, the Keys. Yeah, the four guys. Yeah, yeah, the four guys. Yeah, from really the Keys. nice guys. They're explorers, and it's a part series. It's going to be good. Okay. All right, Bruce. This was uh, interesting. This is fantastic. Yeah, Bruce. we uh, getting a good uh, recording of uh, your experience, and and this is just the really the tip of the iceberg because there's a lot more that we go into in the book about uh, your your second experience in the, the electronic fog and what happened there, and experiences of other pilots as well, including Charles Lindbergh. There's a lot of different stories in there and uh, some uh, and kind of ties in with UFOs towards the end and so there's you know a lot of uh, different theories and a lot of different uh, possibilities and you know the 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 weathermen the meteorologists uh, just scratch their heads when you talk about electronic fog uh, but uh, you know yeah. there is something there though oh yeah yeah it takes it, it might take a hundred years uh, <laughs> maybe <laughs> less I never <laughs> 50 years ago. So, another, within another 50 years, uh, they're definitely uh, going to know all about the electronic fog and uh, how to avoid it. And they should invent instruments about it. And there's quite a few people working on that, uh, yeah. for, especially for airplanes. You know, it's like 30 years ago, they at the storm scope. See, we, we never used to know where the lightning was. Right. Now we know exactly where there's lightning. Right. So we avoid it with the storm scopes that are built into our moving maps. And what's interesting is, you know, a few years ago, you're the only one who was talking about electronic <laughs> fog. Now you hear it from other sources and uh, when there's uh, discussions about the Bermuda Triangle. So, Yeah, pilots are some of them anyway are starting to understand. They, they call it a, a magnetic fog that attaches to the airplane. That's my theory. Uh, yeah. That seems to be what happens, that the uh, the fog or the cloud is, like attaches to the plane and it's traveling with you. So yeah. it may seem like you're flying for miles and miles through yeah. this massive cloud, but actually it's a very small cloud that's right there flowing with you. And the way you discovered yeah. that was that you could see a hole in the bottom to the ocean and you could see a hole at top as you're flying along, how could that be? How could there be constantly a hole there unless the cloud was moving with you? And, yeah. and then you compare it with the radar that shows there's no big, uh, huge, massive cloud out there at all. It's just yeah, clear sky. So, yeah, this has uh, been interesting. We got to wrap it up. And uh, we've got two dogs here, Bruce, who's yeah. who are coming over here with their frisbee saying, Take us to the dog park. <laughs> In one of our earlier podcasts, we talked about how Edgar Allan Poe, in his unfinished novel, The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, told us told a story of cannibalism on the high seas that was reflected with uncanny accuracy with a real event that took place 47 years later. Well, Poe is back again in this episode of The Writer's Corner, and this time we're exploring the death of the man who is considered one of America's greatest authors, if not the greatest. Edgar Allan Poe's death in 1849 at the age of 40, imagine he died at 40, is an unsolved mystery. He was found slumped 
on a curb outside an Irish pub by a friend, a doctor, who reported that he was wearing cheap, ill-fitting clothing, unlike his usual attire. He spent several days in hospital in a state of delirium before dying. Theories have included suicide, murder, cholera, hypoglycemia, rabies, syphilis, influenza, and alcohol poisoning. Wait, what is what was his usual attire? How did he usually dress? Oh, I, I think kind of formally. Formally? And he was just wearing kind of raggedy clothes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So, but an article in neurosciencenews.com presents research by psychologist Dr. Ryan Boyd from Lancaster University and his colleague, Hannah Dean from the University of Texas at Austin that suggests that Poe did not commit suicide. Their evidence is computational analysis of language used by Poe. They found that Poe's psychological markers of depression were not consistent with suicide. Their research has now been published in the Journal of Affective Disorders. Dr. Boyd said, my hunch is that he was indeed spiraling into a depression towards the end of his life, but he didn't kill himself. Using computerized language analysis, they analyzed 309 of Poe's personal letters, 49 poems, and 63 short stories, and investigated whether a pattern of linguistic cues consistent with depression and suicidal cognition were discernible throughout the writer's life, particularly in his final years. They found five measures which have been established as diagnostic, uh, di- as diagnostic of, of depression and or suicide. Suicide. <laughs> suicide. <laughs> How do you say that? Suicidality. I've <laughs> okay. Suicide. You want to read what those five are, Trish? Yeah. Um, okay. The five markers are increased use of first person singular pronouns, words like I, me, my. Inst- Increased use of negative emotion words, bad, sad, angry. More cognitive processing words, think, understand, know. Fewer positive emotion words, happy, good, terrific. Fewer first-person plural pronouns, such as we, us, and our. So these linguistic markers of depression spiked during negative events in Poe's life, like the death of his wife. Past research has shown that depressive language patterns tend to dramatically rise leading up to one's death by suicide. However, this pattern did not consistently emerge in the last year of Poe's life. Poe is known to have suffered from regular bouts of severe depression and also had a drug and alcohol problem. He lost his parents as a two-year-old and was devastated uh, first by the death of his foster mother and then uh, by that of his own wife, Virginia Clem Poe in 1847. The researchers concluded significant, consistent patterns of depression were not found and do not support suicide as a cause of death. However, linguistic evidence was found suggesting the presence of several potential depressive episodes over the course of Poe's life. These episodes were the most pronounced during years of Poe's greatest success, oddly enough, as well as those following the death of his ex-wife. Quote, our analyses suggest that he struggled deeply with with success, with linguistic markers of depression peaking during the time times of his greatest fame and popularity in 1843, 1845, and 1849. And that's our that's writer's corner.
Thanks for joining the Mystical Underground. Listen to the podcast at www.themysticalunderground.com. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Visit the blog, blog blog.synchrosecrets.com, or visit the book site, phenomena111.com. Send us email at podcast at themysticalunderground.com. Until next week, thank you for listening, and stay mystical. So I just sent you the picture of my my dad's dad's service album from Fort Lewis. Okay. Now, if you if you look if you look at the picture and the the drawing inside the circle in the middle of the shield. Fort Lewis. Oh, okay. okay. This. So so you see you see what's in the circle inside yeah, the right. shield. All right. So here. So here is the picture I sent back to dad when he sent me that. And well, and if you look closely, you can see uh, over to the left, it says Posey, J.A. Right, that's, right. That's yeah. Johnny Harvey Posey. What's that UFO doing in the middle there? <laughs> <laughs> the, luckily, it wasn't the Hindem, Hind, uh, Hindenburg. It was just a, a dirigible. Wow, that but, is incredible. But that, that's the picture I sent back to dad, and I said, yeah, does that look familiar? Wow. I would love to do a post on this. This is a great synchronicity. Yeah.